Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Welcome to the Blackstone Chambers' 2023 Public Law Conference podcast series. I am Hanif Musa King's counsel. In this series, we will be covering a number of short talks addressing the latest legal developments and recent cases in public law. Firstly, I'd like to welcome George Molyneux, who will be speaking on standing in judicial review claims. My topic today is standing, and in the time available, I'm going to do three things. First, I'll do what I suspect for most listeners to this podcast will be a very brief reminder of some of the key principles on standing. Second, I'll discuss the extent to which judgments over the past year or so indicate a change in approach. And third, I'll say something about how, from a practical perspective, we as legal representatives can assist our clients in dealing with standing issues. So first, the basic principles. In most judicial reviews, the claimant is an individual or entity challenging a decision to treat or not treat them in a particular way. In such cases, it's obvious that the claimant meets the statutory test for standing. They have sufficient interest in the matter to which the application relates. The problems arise in challenges to decisions which don't have a specific impact on identifiable individuals. In modern times, the courts have generally adopted a liberal approach to standing in such cases. This reflects that, as Lord Reid said in Walton's The Scottish Ministers at paragraph 94, the rule of law could not be maintained if, because everyone was equally affected by an unlawful act, no one was able to bring proceedings to challenge it. The best known case in this area was a claim brought in 1994 by an NGO called World Development Movement, which was allowed to challenge a decision by the British government to fund a hydroelectric scheme in Malaysia, notwithstanding assessments that the scheme was poor value for money. The court referred to various factors when ruling that World Development Movement had standing. These included the merits of the challenge, the importance of the issues at stake, the expertise of the claimant organisation, and the likely absence of any other responsible challenger. In essence, if the rule of law was to be maintained, someone had to be allowed to challenge the decision, and it was not obvious that anyone else was better placed to do so. That's probably enough on basic principles, but the absence or presence of better-placed challengers is something we'll come back to. Moving to recent developments, there's a bit of a good law project theme here, and I'll refer to them as GLP. I suspect that GLP will be well known to most listeners, but in short, it is a campaigning organisation which has in recent years pursued public interest litigation on many fronts, in some cases with considerable success. The case which sparked the recent interest in standing is a claim brought by GLP and the Runnymede Trust, the latter being a well-established race equality NGO. The claimants complained that individuals had been appointed 
without open competition to COVID-related roles, and that in practice, a prior personal connection with the decision-maker was a precondition for appointment. Two of the grounds relied upon were indirect discrimination and apparent bias. Those claims failed on the merits, and in any event, it was held that neither claimant had standing to pursue them. The court said that any challenge should have been by someone who contended that they should have been considered for appointment. There was also a public sector equality duty ground. On this ground, the court held that Runnymede had standing and succeeded in its claim, but that GLP lacked standing. The reasoning was that Runnymede was the better place challenger. The claim was about equality and discrimination, and that is very much Runnymede's bailiwick. By contrast, GLP's interests were and are wide-ranging. Indeed, the objects clause in its Articles of Association was drafted in such a way as to bring pretty much any public law error by any public authority within GLP's remit. And the court said that an organisation can't confer standing on itself by drafting a wide objects clause, and that Runnymede was the claimant with greater experience on equality issues. The judgment attracted a lot of attention, since in previous cases, GLP hadn't had too much difficulty establishing that it had standing. Since Runnymede, there has been a tendency to scrutinise standing more closely. One example is another GLP case, this time a challenge to decisions to award contracts for lateral flow tests to a company called Abingdon Health. GLP was the sole claimant. All its grounds of challenge failed on the merits, and the court went on to say that it also lacked standing. The starting point was that GLP was not an economic operator that had bid for any of the contracts, or which would have had any interest in doing so. The court emphasised that that wasn't determinative, and suggested that a claimant other than an economic operator might have standing if either they were particularly affected by the award of the contract, or there was some grave illegality in the contract award. However, neither of those situations applied, so GLP lacked standing. Standing also arose in the recent litigation about the proposed removal to Rwanda of asylum applicants. Individuals whom the Home Office wanted to remove all obviously had standing, but it was held that some NGO claimants did not, since the individual claimants were better placed. The court said the NGOs weren't advancing arguments that the individuals couldn't advance themselves. So the courts are looking at standing more closely than they did in the past. But I'd caution against thinking that there has been some sort of revolution, for two reasons. First, the better place challenger principle isn't new. It has been applied in several cases over the years, such as the Crown on the application of D and others and the Parole Board in 2018, and the Crown on the application of Baroness Jones and others, and the Commissioner of Police of the Metropolis in 2019. The point also arose in one of the early GLP cases in 2021. 
in which GLP and three MPs challenged a failure to publish information about procurement decisions. The court held that GLP had standing, and its claim succeeded. But, since GLP had standing, there was no reason to accord standing to the MPs, and the court declined to do so. That case was one of GLP's successes, and it got a lot of publicity. But I don't recall any suggestion that the refusal to accord standing to the MPs marked any change of approach. And there is, I think, some force in the point that what happened in Runnymede wasn't really any different. The second point I'd make is that, so far as I'm aware, the recent cases where it has been held that a claimant doesn't have standing are either cases where the claim failed on the merits, such as GLP's Abingdon Health claim, or cases where there was another claimant before the court who did have standing, such as Runnymede. We're not, or at least not yet, in the territory of unlawful decisions being insulated from challenge on standing grounds. So my view is that there hasn't been a sea change in the law on standing. There is, though, a new focus on it, and I want to close by considering in practical terms how we can assist our clients in this area. If you're acting for a defendant, the advice is pretty straightforward. Standing points are in fashion, and it's worth taking them. If you're acting for a potential claimant, the position is more complicated, especially if the client is not an individual or entity that has been specifically affected by the decision that they want to challenge. It may be important to consider with the client whether they should be a claimant at all. If, say, the client is an NGO that wants to challenge a government decision, the best strategy may be for the client to use its contacts to find an individual who is directly affected by the decision and assist that individual to bring a claim, rather than the NGO itself being a claimant. If the NGO has expertise that would help the individual's claim, the NGO could, for example, provide a witness statement or seek permission to intervene. It may be, though, that an NGO is the right entity to bring the claim. There will be some cases, for example in the environmental field, where an NGO with specialist knowledge is likely to be better placed than any individual. In such cases, the important thing to do is to address standing proactively in the Statement of Facts and Grounds and in the evidence accompanying it. That is likely to involve more than just some puff about what a wonderful organisation the claimant is. Rather, it's likely to be necessary to go into quite a bit of detail about the claimant's expertise and why no one else is better placed to bring the claim. That, it seems to me, is likely to be the best way to head off attacks on standing. Next, we have Sarah Wilkinson providing a general update on procedure in the administrative court. My job is to fill in the gaps left by the more excitingly named talks in this series and bring you up to date with cases from the last 12 months on procedure which haven't been covered by my colleagues. Sadly, no Brexit, no Russians, no princes of the realm here. Instead, immigration and energy markets. So prepare to be dazzled and entertained.
Beyond those cases that my colleagues will be talking about, 2022 to 23 was not, unfortunately for me, a bumper year on the procedural front. No new practice directions, a one-word amendment to practice direction 54A in April this year, no new directives from on high. But tucked away in the depths of Westlaw, there are three cases I'd like to talk to you about. They cover wildly different topics, but all have significance for our everyday practice. The first is the king on the application of Oceana against Secretary of State for the Home Department, a decision of Mr Justice Saini, formerly of these chambers, handed down on the 31st of March this year. This case was the first test of the clause ousting judicial review of upper tribunal appeal decisions, which was inserted by last year's Judicial Review and Courts Act 2022, which came into force on the 14th of July 2022. And it's generally agreed that it sounds the final death knell of judicial reviews of upper tribunal decisions on Article 8 grounds in immigration and other cases. The court heard as a preliminary issue a challenge to the jurisdiction of the admin court to hear a claim for judicial review of a refusal of permission by the upper tribunal to appeal to the upper tribunal. The claimant was a citizen of the Philippines. She came to the UK as a student in 2008, but outstayed her permission to remain after it had been cancelled on the basis of an alleged fraud. Her leave was cancelled because of suspected fraud in obtaining a TOEIC language test certificate at Eden College International in the Mile End Road, established in other proceedings to be an institution where testing frauds were rife. She became liable to be removed from the UK, but applied to remain here on grounds of her private life. That application was refused by the Home Secretary. She appealed to the first tier tribunal, but that appeal was dismissed and permission to appeal was refused. The upper tribunal then refused permission to appeal to itself and the claimant sought judicial review of that decision. The central issue was the validity and application of section 11A of the Tribunals, Courts and Enforcement Act 2007, which was added to the 2007 Act by the notorious 2022 Act. Section 11A renders any decision by the upper tribunal to refuse permission or leave to appeal as final and not liable to be questioned or set aside in any other court. Unless the upper tribunal is acting or has acted in bad faith or in such a procedurally defective way as to amount to a fundamental breach of the principles of natural justice. And that ouster clause came in for a lot of criticism during the passage of the bill. Lord Panic, for example, at committee stage, could not see why the exception should be limited to procedural defects and argued that there should be a further exception for where the upper tribunal has made a fundamental error of law. That amendment, one might think, was arguably broad enough to encompass Article 8 claims, but he was not successful in obtaining it. Mr Justice Saini commented on the amendments that were successful, and I quote, Following consultation, the government introduced the Judicial Review and Courts Bill 2022. I note that the relevant clause in its original form referred, in describing the exception to the proposed exclusion of the supervisory jurisdiction, to the Upper Tribunal acting in fundamental breach of the principles of natural justice. 
During its passage through Parliament, the relevant clause in the bill was amended to refer to the upper tribunal acting in such a procedurally defective way as amounts to a fundamental breach of the principles of natural justice. That is how it now stands. The purpose of the amendment was to clarify that the fundamental breach of natural justice must be procedural in nature." End quote. The claimant and her legal team had clearly not been following the passage of the 2022 Act as closely as Saini J. They argued that it, Section 11A was inconsistent with the 2011 Supreme Court decision in CART. Wrong, said Mr Justice Saini. You've overlooked that Section 11A was expressly introduced to overturn the decision in CART. And he quoted the Under Secretary of State at the Ministry of Justice during the passage of the bill in the House of Lords. Quote, in his written submissions, counsel for the claimant argued that Section 11A is inconsistent with the decision of the Supreme Court in CART. The claimant's submission, however, ignores the fact that Section 11A was intended to overturn that very decision. Thus, in introducing the bill in the House of Lords, the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Ministry of Justice observed, Clause 2 implements another recommendation of the Independent Review. It ousts the supervisory jurisdiction of the High Court and Court of Session over the Upper Tribunal under certain circumstances. This overturns a Supreme Court judgment in 2011 that established what is commonly now known as a CART judicial review. End quote. Indeed, the judge granting permission for judicial review before the matter came before Mr Justice Saney had actually relied on CART as well. The CART test was that permission should be granted where the JR raised an important point of practice and that there was a compelling reason to permit it to proceed. Mr Justice Saney then examined what breaches of natural justice did justify a judicial review under Section 11A and how the court should approach that assessment. He broke the requirements down into five elements for the court to consider. Firstly, and obviously, there must be a failure in process. Secondly, it must be so grave as to rob the process of any legitimacy. Thirdly, it was a substantial hurdle. Fourthly, the court should consider the entire process and lastly, the court should make a holistic assessment. He then decided there were no such breaches in this case. But not content to rely on a pepper and heart approach to oust the upper tribunal's jurisdiction, Mr Justice Saini then turned to the language of the section itself to deal with the claimant's second argument, which he described as ambitious, judge speak for you will lose, that he should overturn the ouster clause because Section 11A was an impermissible ouster of the inherent supervisory jurisdiction of the court at common law. Mr Justice Saini disagreed for three reasons. Firstly, it was only a partial ouster because of the procedural defects ground of appeal. Secondly, there was no conflict with the rule of law because Parliament had enacted Section 11A to determine the scope of the judicial review jurisdiction as it was entitled to do. Thirdly, he relied on Privacy International, a Supreme Court case from 2020, from which he gave an impromptu constitutional law lecture, holding that the most fundamental rule of our constitutional law is that the Crown in Parliament is sovereign, 
and that legislation enacted by the Crown with the consent of both Houses of Parliament is supreme. The common law supervisory jurisdiction of the High Court enjoyed no immunity from these principles when clear legislative language is used. So, as a result of the Oceana case, there is no judicial review available from a permission decision of the upper tribunal unless on grounds of a procedural flaw that amounts to a fundamental breach of the principles of natural justice. And that's a very high bar. In my view, such breaches will be few and far between. So my advice is to get your Article 8 challenges in before the first tier tribunal, if you're going to make them. From immigration, we turn now to energy. The second case I'm going to call Bulb for short, although its official name is the King on the Application of British Gas against the Secretary of State, Desnes, a decision handed down on the 31st of March this year. It arose out of the failure of the energy company Bulb and its acquisition by Octopus Energy under Ofgem's Supplier of Last Resort scheme, and it challenged the bidding process by which Octopus had acquired Bulb and the subsidy available to bidders. This was a huge rolled up hearing in front of the divisional court with seven interested parties and Blackstone barristers representing three of those seven. But it's of interest to us because despite the 283 paragraphs of the judgment, the case ultimately turned on a preliminary issue, whether the claimants had unduly delayed in bringing the JR in breach of CPR rule 54.5. The court took the perhaps unusual step of waiting until paragraph 159 to identify their conclusion that the applications for permission had to be refused on grounds of delay alone under section 316A of the Senior Courts Act 1981. But they then went on, or bitter, to consider the merits of the grounds in any events in the remaining 144 paragraphs. The facts on delay were as follows. The relevant decisions were taken on the 27th of October 2022 and the 7th of November 2022. But the claimants did not issue the claim form until the 28th of November. They only gave notice that the case might require urgent consideration by the court four days earlier. Scarcely a delay at all, one might think. However, the process of bidding that was the subject of the JR had begun in March 2022 and by August and early September the claimant was complaining to Ofgem about the process adopted. The court emphasised that because of the importance of the issue, the transfer of domestic energy customers from one energy supplier to another, bringing a JR challenge speedily was critical. And bear in mind at this point the Good Law Project case on delay from 2022 and the guidance given there about applying to extend time. Four essential points about delay emerge from the Bulb case. Firstly, domestic procedural requirements as to promptness and undue delay in the CPR, which give effect to Section 316A of the Senior Courts Act, are compatible with Article 373.2 of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement on Electricity and Gas Supply Markets between the EU and the UK. The claimants had argued that as long as they brought their claim within one month of the date on which the relevant information was published, they were in time. The court rejected that argument, preferring Tom Hickman KC's submission 
that Article 3732 only applied to remedy and held they could refuse permission on the basis of Section 316 alone. Secondly, the Divisional Court found that the essential bases of the complaints were known and could reasonably have been made in an urgent application for judicial review considerably earlier. Thirdly, and perhaps obviously, the court held that a claimant does not need full disclosure to launch JR proceedings. And fourthly, the court reiterated that if you're making an urgent application, you don't have to send a pre-action protocol letter. So the moral of the story is better to issue early and protectively and seek permission to amend your grounds if further information becomes available than to lose a judicial review application at no doubt considerable expense on grounds of delay. And the more important your case, and consider the effect on the public as one measure of that, the earlier you should issue. The third and final case I want to talk about simply emphasises a trend that also occurs in the other two. Admin court judges are increasingly citing the admin court guide in judgments, and there are bits in there I never knew existed. In the case of R on the application of Campos against the Home Secretary, handed down on the 21st of December 2022, it was an immigration case with unexceptional facts. The claimant was a Brazilian national whose leave to remain was cancelled on the grounds that he was working illegally. He was detained pending removal and he brought a challenge to that detention on the grounds of lack of disclosure and irrationality. And the irrationality ground was a very late addition to an already messy procedural history. Claire Padley, sitting as a Deputy High Court judge, was unimpressed. And I quote, Procedural rigour and the need to observe the rules has its own section in the Administrative Court Guide 2022, which is available online to all parties to these proceedings. Unfortunately, such rigour and observance were notably absent from the conduct of these proceedings on the part of both parties, with the result that by the time of the substantive hearing, the nature of the claim, the evidence from both parties and the arguments being made had all evolved significantly from the originally pleaded claim." End quote. I was unaware of this section in the Admin Court Guide. It starts off rather obviously with the subheading, The Need to Observe the Rules. It then emphasises a subset of CPR 54 rules which are considered to be the most important. Firstly, identifying the parties. Secondly, candour. Thirdly, early applications, as we've just seen. Fourthly, compliance with deadlines. Fifthly, filing in the correct format. And it underlines the sanctions that the court may apply for non-compliance. Now, all three of the cases I've talked about today refer to the Admin Court Guide in detail, and I suggest it may be a fruitful source of quotations for attacking procedural shortcomings in your opponent's handling of their cases, particularly the more sanctimonious sections such as procedural rigour. Also, double-check your own procedural compliance if in any doubt by reference to the guide. This may seem basic, but better to cite the basics than get to paragraph 149 only to be told you've lost on delay. Next, Charlotte Kilroy King's Council, examining procedural fairness. The requirement to hear the other side before taking a decision which affects an individual's rights or interests 
otherwise known as Audi Alterem Partem, is fundamental to fairness. As Lord Lawburn said in Board of Education and Rice, listening fairly to both sides is a duty lying upon everyone who decides anything. It seems so simple and basic. So why do cases involving unfairness crop up so regularly? It's perhaps not difficult to understand why government decision makers adopt unfair procedures. As Lord Atkin said in General Medical Council and Spackman, convenience and justice are often not on speaking terms. But it's not just government officials who get it wrong. The authors of Wade and Forsyth in Administrative Law 12th edition record that judges of the Court of Appeal themselves have failed to comply with this requirement and they describe the circumstances in which that has occurred. During COVID, the President of the Upper Tribunal issued a guidance note for tribunal judges on fairness, which was itself inconsistent with common law fairness. That's a case called JCWI and President of the Upper Tribunal Immigration and Appeals Commission. It seems, as the authors of Wade and Forsyth conclude, that overlooking the need to give people affected by decisions a fair hearing is one of the most common legal errors to which human nature is prone. So what does common law procedural fairness entail? And why is the obligation so often honored in the breach? Time and again, the courts return to Lord Mustall in the famous case of ex-party duty for a distillation of what the authorities say common law fairness requires. In duty, Lord Mustill set out what amounts to a constitutional rationale for requiring power to be exercised fairly. He said that where an act of parliament confers an administrative power, there is a presumption that it will be exercised in a manner which is fair in all the circumstances. This is derived from the famous case of Cooper and Wandsworth, where Mr Justice Biles stated that the common law will, quote, supply the omission of the legislature. Lord Mustall emphasised that what fairness requires depends on the context. He explained that the standards of fairness are not immutable they may change with the passage of time and in their application to decisions of a particular type. He also said that the principles of fairness are not to be applied by rote identically in every situation. What fairness demands is dependent on the context of the decision taken. An essential feature of that context is the statute which creates the decision-maker's discretion. Finally, Lord Mustall addressed what in almost every context fairness requires, and this is an important qualification to his 
recognition that context is important. He said, fairness will very often require that a person who may be adversely affected by the decision will have an opportunity to make representations on his own behalf, either before the decision is taken, with a view to producing a favorable result, or after it is taken, with a view to procuring its modification, or both. So in other words, those standard requirements are present in almost all decisions, regardless of the context. And he also said that since the person affected usually cannot make worthwhile representations without knowing what factors may weigh against his interests, fairness will very often, in other words, not dependent on the context, very often require that a person is informed of the gist of the case which he has to answer. It is these last parts of Lord Mustell's distillation of the law which decision-makers frequently find hard to comply with. That is because an opportunity to make representations means an opportunity which is effective, and the courts have emphasised that in duty itself at page 560D to G and 563F, and in other cases such as Thiracuma at 414. It also means adequate notice of the decision before the decision is taken, another requirement which decision makers often find difficult to comply with. And that is made clear by the House of Lords in a case called Anofrijeva. Adequate notice, meanwhile, entails enough time to make effective representations and the courts have explored what that means in detention action and first tier tribunal and in refugee legal center amongst other cases and it also means being provided enough information to enable the individual to target their representations effectively that itself will almost always involve providing individuals with the adverse material that the decision maker plans to rely on or of informing them of allegations against them. And again, examples of cases recognizing that are in Reed Minors and Kanda and Malaya. If the decision maker has already reached a provisional view before hearing the representations, a gist of those provisional views will also often be required and the courts have recognized that in a series of cases. Duty itself, a case called Q, Thiracuma, another case in the Court of Appeal called Balajigari, and a case called FZ and London Borough of Croydon. And of course, there must be enough time to prepare and make representations about those provisional views or that material. So how much information is disclosed will affect how much time is required to be given. And the courts have made that clear in, amongst other cases, ex parte polemis. If the material is complex or the issues are grave, fairness may also require access to lawyers to ensure that the representations are capable of being effective. And the courts have addressed that in cases like Guadanavicine, and Director of Legal Aid Casework 
and in detention action and Secretary of State for the Home Department. As for what an effective opportunity to make representation means after the decision is taken, that requires proper reasons. And the Supreme Court addressed that in a case called CPRE Kent and Dover District Council. The courts have explained that reasons are required partly because they enable a person to know whether they have any basis for mounting a legal challenge to a decision. And they also enable a court or tribunal to assess whether a decision is wrong. These, as the Court of Appeal recognised in Citizens UK at paragraph 171, are elementary but fundamental features of the rule of law. Are there any types of decision which don't require these opportunities that I've been describing to be given? In short, hardly any, where the decision may adversely determine an individual's rights or interests. That is because, as already highlighted, listening fairly to both sides is a duty lying upon everyone who decides anything. That's Board of Education and Rice again. The context is important because the amount of time needed to make representation and what material needs to be disclosed in advance will depend on that context. But the basic obligation to hear the other side, Audi, Alta and Partem, is likely to be present in almost all decisions which adversely affect individuals. Looking at that context, at one end of the spectrum, there are decision-making powers which have enormous consequences for individuals or which gravely affect a person's future, such as whether to demolish a person's house, that was what was at issue in Cooper and Wandsworth, or what the length of a custodial sentence should be, that was the issue in Doody, or asylum decisions, which are, as the Court of Appeal recognised in FP Iran, literally a matter of life and death. In that context, that is asylum, the powers are of such moment that only the highest standards of fairness will suffice. That's the Court of Appeal in ex parte Thirukumar. Even where the scheme does not involve determining rights or interests, but confers benefits on individuals to which they were not entitled by right, there is still an obligation to act fairly. And the Court of Appeal explained that most recently in Citizens UK at paragraphs 86 to 87. The requirements of procedural fairness turning to the other end of the spectrum are altered where the decision to be taken is general to a section of the public rather than specific to an individual, as in the planning context. And the courts have looked at those kind of distinctions in Ridge and Baldwin and Bushel and Secretary of State of the Environment. In such schemes, opportunities for the public to make objections are often written into the statutory scheme so that individuals affected do not each have to be given separate chances to make representations. Even in that context, however, fairness may still require an opportunity to objectors to make additional representations on adverse material which wasn't previously published 
before the time period to make objections that the public was given had come to an end. Another key area which is persistently misunderstood by both decision makers and courts is the rationale for procedural fairness. The Supreme Court has made clear that obligations of procedural fairness are imposed on decision makers for three main reasons. The first, to secure better decisions. Secondly, to respect the dignity of the individual. And thirdly, to uphold the rule of law. That's the Supreme Court in Osborne and Parole Board and also dealt with in Pathan by the Supreme Court. The need to respect the dignity of the individual means that the requirement to afford an opportunity to make representations can apply even where the representations would make no difference to the outcome. That was recognised by the Supreme Court in Pathan at paragraph 126. And that concept is very difficult for lawyers to comprehend. Paragraphs 67 to 71 of the Supreme Court's judgment in Osborne repay frequent revisiting for that reason. Lord Reed said in that case, there is no doubt that one of the virtues of procedurally fair decision-making is that it is liable to result in better decisions by ensuring that the decision-maker receives all relevant information and that it is properly tested. Now, even though that is easy to understand, Surprisingly, decision-makers even overlook this benefit fairly frequently. But at least two other important values are also engaged, as he recognised. The first is the avoidance of the sense of injustice which the person who is the subject of the decision will otherwise feel. He said respect entails that such persons ought to be able to participate in the procedure by which the decision is made, provided they have something to say which is relevant to the decision to be taken. He quoted Jeremy Waldron in an article, How Law Protects Dignity. The quote goes like this, applying a norm to a human individual is not like deciding what to do about a rabid animal or a dilapidated house. It involves paying attention to a point of view and respecting the personality of the entity one is dealing with. And he said that that point could be illustrated by Mr Justice Byles' citation in Cooper and Wandsworth of a dictum of Mr Justice Fortescue in a much earlier case, Dr Bentley's case. That citation was as follows. The laws of God and man both give the party an opportunity to make his defence if he has any. I remember to have heard it observed by a very learned man on such an occasion that even God himself did not pass sentence on Adam before he was called on to make his defence. Lord Reed explained that the point of this dictum is that Adam was allowed a hearing notwithstanding that God, being omniscient, did not require to hear him in order to improve the quality of his decision. The second often overlooked value 
is the rule of law. As Lord Reed said, procedural requirements that decision makers should listen to persons who have something relevant to say, promote congruence between the actions of decision makers and the law which should govern their actions. As this short snapshot of some of the key principles underlying the obligation to act fairly shows, despite its apparent simplicity and its centrality to our common law system of justice, complying with and applying concepts of procedural fairness poses challenges for decision makers and courts alike. Reminding both them and ourselves of those principles and of the key underlying authorities is thus always a fruitful exercise. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes and visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.